We all like to see ourselves making progress, don't we? We like a good progress report. We're encouraged when we see a project that we're working on actually making progress. If you're like me, you're actually quite nosy if, if anybody's building anything and you see, oh, they're getting on well with that building as you see it come up. I know nothing about building, but I like to be nosy and go and have a look. Well, last week we attended uh, parent-teacher interviews for our children. And I won't tell you which of my children it was, you can guess. But last year uh, at the interviews, we were told that one of them has a habit of getting a worksheet, looking at it, deciding it's a bit too difficult, hiding it under the desk, and pretending that she never got it in the first place. And then when the teacher would come around and say, well, where's your worksheet? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and the teacher would hook around and find it, and it would come out. Um, and, and, and she'd say, oh, Anna, you had that under your desk. I've told you who it is now. And Anna would say, oh, there it is. How did it get under there? And she would continue to play this as, as if this was amazing, as if she hadn't just been found out. This year we were told, no, she doesn't do that anymore. And we thought, yes, progress, progress. We like to see ourselves making progress. Maybe if we've had some sort of medical issue and we're trying to get back to full strength, we do physio, we see ourselves getting stronger. Some people go to the gym and they have unrealistic expectations of their progress. When their body hasn't transformed in a few weeks, well, they give up more often than not. They, realize, they don't realize perhaps that it takes considerable time. Musicians often have to practice a, a difficult piece of music in a really mundane way before they see any progress, pulling it apart, making sure all their fingers fall in the right places, taking their breath in the right places. It's all very mundane, unexciting, but they hear their progress and are encouraged. But what about the, the Christian life? How do we measure our progress there? The book of Hebrews elsewhere talks about moving on from milk to solid food. How do we measure that and how do we work that out? Well, I would suggest one way of measuring it, if, if it is measurable, is to look at our lives and ask the question, how Christ-like are we? Because after all, that is the goal of being a disciple. We read it, Romans 8, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So how like him are we becoming? How's the fight with sin going? He was tempted in every way, we read, and yet was without sin. How is our appetite for the word and prayer and worship? Now, if you were here last week, you'll know that we looked at verse 31 and the idea that God is for us and he proved it, verse 32, by not sparing his son. So whatever we're facing, we, we looked at the cross and we know that God is for us. But Paul knows us too well. He knows that as we read those words, we might think to ourselves, well, okay, he's for me. He's died on the cross for me. I'll be with him forever in heaven. So he's for me but I just have to grin and bear it for now, don't I? You know, he's for me, he died for me, yes, he's done that, great, everything's gonna be okay one day in the end, so I just have to grin and bear it for now. And in one sense, there's, there's truth in that because we do read in the New Testament about that hope which gives us what we need to, to press on in the here and now. We do look to the end for hope, but it's never a sense of grinning and bearing it. No, no. If your understanding of God working everything together for your good only gets you as far as grinning and bearing it until you get to heaven, then I suppose it's something. 
but it's really living on the bare minimum because what he can give you is so much more. Today's verse, Romans 8, 32, promises us much more than that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now, it's a long and convoluted sort of question. It takes a minute or two to get your head around it. But actually, Paul's logic is quite straightforward because he says if God does this immense thing, not sparing his own son, literally defeating death for us, if he gives us the victory over the one enemy we could never defeat on our own, death, well, then surely he can give us everything else because everything else is easier than that. You know, if a competitor in the world's strongest man can lift up the front end of a 40-ton articulated lorry and pull it down along a street, I think you could ask him to lift a brick. He could probably do it with his little finger. And so if God can do the hardest thing for us, then surely he can do everything else. In fact, Paul is so confident of that that in the original text, there's actually an extra word, and that word is surely. Surely God can do this. Very few of our translations include it. The NET was the only one I found that did. Even super literal translations like the King James and the ESV don't include it, but it's in there. They've decided it's redundant in English, but I don't think so. Paul is convinced of this. It's logical to him. Surely if Paul can do this hard thing, then he can do the other. He's convinced of it. And also those last words that Paul, Paul says that God can give us all things, well, again, that's, that's very literal and that's fine. The NRSV is a bit less literal and I think they're on the money. It's Paul's logic. He can give us everything else. If he can do this really hard thing, surely he can do everything else. So there we have it this morning. I've called that the RPV. That's the Ravenhill Presbyterian version, just for you today. Surely he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, give us everything else? That's Paul's logic. But why then? Why all this talk about progress? How does this verse and this promise help us to progress or, or to grow in our faith? Well, there are two things um, that I want us to do with that question this morning um, so we can, we can answer it. Firstly, we want to see the enormity of what God has done for us and then how that works out in our lives. So firstly, the, the enormity of what God has done. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You know, sometimes I think when we look at the cross, we think that we put Jesus onto the cross. Sometimes we sing a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and in that song there's a line, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And of course it's fine to sing that, of course, because it's only because of our sin that he had to go to the cross, that's fine. But our sin didn't crucify him. Roman soldiers didn't take him to the cross. Pilate didn't send him to the cross. The religious rulers didn't send him to the cross. Paul says God the Father sent Jesus to the cross. Paul's language here is very carefully chosen. He who did not spare his own son. And that language of not sparing his own son is exactly what it says in the Greek Old Testament about Abraham not sparing his own son Isaac but offering him up on the altar. People, Paul said that because the Romans would have known that example. Nobody else put Isaac on the altar. It was all on his father Abraham. He didn't withhold his own son. In that case, God stepped in. He spared Isaac. 
and provided the lamb. But Abraham was the one who brought Isaac to that place. And that's why Paul chooses this language. It was God himself who took Jesus to the cross. No one else. We read it in Romans, or sorry, in Hebrews a few moments ago, that it wasn't Christ himself even who took it upon himself. So Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. It was God. That was always the plan. Back in Isaiah 53, it was prophesied. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Then what does it say? And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And later in the same chapter, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his light, his life, a guilt offering. When Jesus was on trial, he said to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It was God the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made him, not him, not anybody else, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's entirely God's initiative. The Bible teaches us that God is righteous and holy. He cannot and will not leave sin unpunished. His justice just won't let sin go. It's not a light matter for him. And so either we're punished for our sin or someone else is in our place. And only one person could take that place, the one who learned obedience. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. It had to be God's son. It had to be Jesus. And so God didn't spare him, but he offered him up instead. He sent him into the world to suffer, not just on the cross, the eternal one, entering time as a tiny baby in a cold, smelly stable. He knew struggles and pain. He knew bereavement. He knew rejection, public rejection. He knew what it was for his own personal safety to be in danger. Others were out to kill him. He knew what it was to be in mental anguish, to be stressed, to the point of sweating blood. He knew what it was to be betrayed by his friends. He knew what it was to pray for something, coming to terms with the fact that it wasn't the Father's will. And the sense of abandonment as he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing changed in God in that moment. He was Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son doing the will of the Father in the power of the Spirit. But he knew, humanly speaking, abandonment by God. That's how he felt, given over to the punishment of sin, so that we wouldn't know that abandonment of God being given over to the punishment of our sin because he took it upon himself. It's difficult to describe in words the immensity of what he has done. Surely he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us everything else? So then secondly, how does that help us practically? Well, he gives us everything else. He gives us all things. He gives us everything we need to make more progress, to become more Christ-like, to become more than conquerors, just as Christ has conquered all things. We can know life in the Spirit and the joy and contentment that peace brings. 
And I just want to offer three suggestions this morning of how that works from our reading in the book of Hebrews. Because knowing that God will in Christ give us all things helps us in in several ways. Firstly, it helps us in suffering. Now, I know that some of you here this morning and also some of our church family who aren't with us this morning are suffering a great deal. Some of you are suffering in your health physically. Some of you are suffering in your health mentally. Some of you are suffering in grief and bereavement. Some of you are suffering stress and are under pressure at work. Some of you are suffering from stress and are under pressure in your family. I know some of you are worried about money, about the cost of living. And if I can say one thing to you this morning, if that's you, it's this. Jesus understands. Jesus understands. Hebrews 5 verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. The father didn't spare his son, but he offered him up to suffer. Now, we've already thought about the pain and anguish that he suffered during his lifetime. We could add into the mix family tension, you know. Why do you think Mary and Joseph ended up in a stable and not with the rest of the family in the house? Why do you think there was no room for them? Maybe the surprise pregnancy had something to do with that. Maybe we could add in the 40 days in the wilderness. Maybe we could add in teaching a bunch of guys who just didn't seem to get it. Maybe we could add in the beating he took, the crown of thorns, the lashing, the mockery, the spit in his face, the beating to the point of not being able to carry his own cross, the nails driven into his hands and feet. If you're suffering mentally or physically this morning, Jesus understands. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it is to ask, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though he was the son of God. And he learned in the midst of suffering to obey God. He saw purpose in his suffering. He saw the reward at the end. Thinking of being Christ-like, Paul and indeed others in the early church actually rejoiced when they suffered. They rejoiced at being worthy to share in Christ's suffering. Now to us that probably seems almost perverse. I mean, what is that about? Who could think that? But once we realize that in suffering we're, we're sharing with Christ and that he understands and that God did not keep him from that so that we could be known and loved by God, well, that helps because we know we don't face it alone. We know that it's God's way for us and we know that the reward at the end of our suffering will be life with God and joy unimaginable solid joys and lasting pleasure we sang earlier. One theologian, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, has said that that suffering is God's raw materials for molding us into the image of Christ. We don't normally see it at the time. In fact, sometimes it can only be years later that we see that God was working in our lives through the suffering. But if you're suffering right now, lean on Christ because you lean on someone who understands who's working to make you more like himself, and he can give you all you need to get through it. Surely he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us everything else? We're also helped in the battle against temptation. Again, Jesus understands, Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet was without sin. I think sometimes we are guilty uh, as Christians of, of sanitizing Jesus a bit here, or of saying that he couldn't have been tempted in the way that I was tempted. You know, he's too much of a figure in a stained glass window maybe to us. Now, of course, it's right. Of course, Jesus was holy. He was without sin. He's completely spotless. But the Bible says he has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Have you ever stopped to consider those words? In every way. And it does mean every way. Just as we are. You know, I think sometimes when we think about those things and we think about Jesus, we don't match them up. I mean, surely Jesus wouldn't have been tempted like that. That doesn't fit our picture of Jesus. But we need to take him out of the stained glass window. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. It's in the Bible. Believe it. Jesus understands. Now, of course, he was without sin. But he was tempted in every way, just as we are. But that means we can come to him at any moment, even in our mess, and even when we're in the midst of temptation, even when we're halfway down the road of giving in to temptation, because he is the power to help us, because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Surely he who did not spare his son, he who did the hardest thing, who gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us everything else? And then finally, Jesus helps us in prayer. He's our great high priest. The man is in heaven. We pray in his name, Jesus who understands. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I think that's one of the greatest verses we find in Scripture. He's able to sympathize with our weakness, whether it's suffering or pain or bereavement, grief, whether it's loneliness, betrayal, mental stress, anguish, whatever way we feel weak, whatever way we're suffering, he understands. And so we come before the throne of grace, not to someone who's sort of lofty and aloof and doesn't understand. I mean, God knows everything anyway, but we pray in and through Jesus, the one who has actually physically experienced the pain of what we're going through. There's a man in heaven at the Father's side. The old hymn says, he reigns, ye saints, exalt your strains. In other words, exalt your strains, let your stresses, your strains be lifted up. Pray about them, give them up to heaven. Your God is king, your Father reigns, and he is at the Father's side the man of love, the crucified. Jesus understands. So in our weakness and in our suffering and facing temptation, as we pray, we come to the one who understands, who's able to help us, to give us all the grace and the mercy we need because he did what was hardest for us when we needed it most. So how much more will he not also graciously with Christ give us everything else? I don't know how you would measure your progress in the faith this morning if I asked you to plot it on a chart, how you would do that. Maybe you feel very close to God at the moment, or perhaps as you think about yourself, you realize just how far you have to go. Join the club. But progress is possible, and indeed it's guaranteed as we head towards the end of history, as we live out these lives of ours, because God has given us what we need the most. How much more? Will he give us everything else we need 
as followers of him in this world. Surely he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us everything else? Let's pray. Our God and our King, we come before you this morning thankful for Jesus. Thank you for his life and his obedience to you. Thank you for his death and resurrection and ascension into the heavens. And as we pray in his name, we know we come to one who understands, who has suffered like us, who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Lord, thank you for that great victory that he has won for us. Thank you that we do one day look forward to being with him forever when our lowly bodies are transformed to be like his glorious body. We are like him and with him in that wonderful place, in the holy city. Yet, Lord, help us in the here and now. Help us walk with Jesus. Help us stay in step with the Spirit. But, Lord, as we struggle to do that, Help us to know and rest on the fact that Jesus understands, that he knows, that he walks beside us every step of the way, and he has done what we needed the most, and so surely he will give us everything else that we need to follow you in this world. And we pray in his name. Amen.